Hello, I'm Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine, and uh, this is Philosophy Now radio show, and today we're talking about the tragedy of life. Uh, to discuss the tragedy of life and some responses to it some modern deep thinkers have recommended, I have with me Christopher Hamilton and Simon May from King's College London, and t- Ken James from uh, Birkbeck College and the College of the New Humanities. Did I pronounce that right? New Ken? College of the Humanities. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, so to kick things off, I just want to start by asking Christopher Hamilton, what is the tragedy of life? Is it that whatever we do, we can't stop bad things happening? Or is there more to tragedy than that? Um, well, actually, yes, I think there is more to tragedy than that. Um, I mean, to start, one might say that there are probably three ways of approaching the notion of tragedy. Uh-huh. One, one would be through the idea of the tragic theatre, as we right, talk about yeah, the sure. Greek tragic theatre and Shakespeare's tragedies. The other is the notion that you alluded to, the idea that tragedy is something which is really bad, as when we say the child was knocked over by a car and Mm -hmm. that was an absolute tragedy. Um, And then there's a third way of thinking about tragedy, which is in fact the way that interests me most as a a philosopher, and that's the idea of a tragic view of life. And one way, I think, to think about that is in terms of the idea of a moral world order, or more exactly, the absence thereof. Uh So if you think, for example, about the idea of... um, if you think about the idea of uh, moral goodness, um, one of the things that seems to me true about life is that the wicked often flourish, that the yeah. good go to the wall, that there is, in fact, no final accounting of happiness with respect to virtue and um, punishment with respect to okay. uh, wickedness. And that's a view, I think, that Christianity, at least in its mainstream form, denies that it, there's, there's, a, there's a teleology, that this world is such that... Sorry, teleology. There's, a, there's an end goal to human history. essentially and there's an end goal to each human life and what that means is essentially that even if we can't see it here and now in the overall structure of things the good will be rewarded and the bad will be punished and in that sense happiness and virtue come together and um punishment and wickedness but that's a fiction and you think that uh the tragedy of if i can summarize the tragedy of life is that uh morality is not connected with anything that actually happens in life. Well, I wouldn't put it that way. I would say that it's only tangentially connected with the notion of happiness. A great many philosophers have wanted to say, and and there's still plenty of philosophers saying this now, wanting to try and show that fundamentally that the good life, the morally good life and the happy life coincide pretty much. I mean, obviously there are complications in the arguments. And that that seems to me not true. It seems to me that these things, they overlap, of course, to some extent. Uh But I think basically they come apart. Um, And I think that that looked at from one point of view is tragic because uh-huh. we have the desire for justice that the world be a just place and we have a desire um that things make sense that uh, and that our own individual investment in moral goodness is not you know a, a form of foolishness for example um okay. so so i think that th- that one way to look at that is as, as part of the tragedy of life or something that makes life tragic okay uh Ken and Simon, how would you respond to that? I mean, you're both interested in tragedy. I mean, but do you have the same sort of understanding of the tragic as Christopher? Well, well can, can, go on, Ken. I wanted to take up uh, one of the points just made and say that um, I'm developing Christopher's point in that one way to look at tragedy was what is really tragic perhaps in life is a certain lack, fundamental lack of meaning uh-huh. and I think Nietzsche captured this very w- well so I'm going to quote from the third essay of the genealogy of morals because uh-huh. a lot of people think oh the problem of life is suffering that's what his predecessor Schopenhauer had said and Nietzsche has this very incisive reply to this to that to Schopenhauer's point about the ubiquity of suffering and the unavoidability of suffering he said man did not know how to justify explain affirm himself he suffered from the problem of his meaning he suffered otherwise as ill he was for the most part a diseased animal but the suffering itself was not his problem rather that the answer was missing to the scream of his question to what end suffering man the bravest of animals and the one most accustomed to suffering does not negate suffering he wants it he even seeks it out provided one shows him a meaning for it to this end of suffering the meaninglessness of suffering not suffering itself was a curse that has thus far stretched over man over humanity and i think that's a really deep point of sure. nature that you know suffer we often tend to think oh the problem the tragedy of life is that man inevitably suffers right. that was a line that schopenhauer in particular sure. took and he just says no 
suffering is not really the fundamental problem. Suffering is bearable. What we are, what we are as humans is we're fundamentally animals and what makes us separate from the actual animals is that we look for meaning. Uh-huh. And the deep void of not having meaning is what can be truly tragic in life. And I just think I'm developing mm. the theme that Christopher started sure. on. Thanks, Ken. Uh, what about you, Simon? How, what's your view on tragedy? Well, I think tragedy is absolutely inevitable. I mean, life uh-huh. is tragic. Well, what would you in say is tragedy? That, what I was just about to say. In, in the sense that our deepest desires and values necessarily conflict either with each other, right. in, which ca- in, in the sense that they are in principle incompatible with each other, or with the world in which they find themselves. So, um, you know, one is a matter of principle and the other is a matter of practice, and I think that is absolutely inevitable. And tragedy is the inevitable conflict of what we most deeply hold, either with other things we most deeply hold, Uh or with the world as we find it. So one example would be the Romeo and Juliet situation of encounter with the world as we find it, in which the deep love of two young people for each other comes up against uh-huh. a social prohibition against two rival families, offspring m- being united in a, in a love match, and that's why we call that a tragedy. So it's a clash of expectations? Would that be a good Well, summary? expectations is putting it a little weakly. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really a clash of our, ultimately, of our deepest values, and perhaps there's nothing okay. more ultimate than the desire for life and the reality of death. So, for instance, that would be one reason why I would say life is inevitably tragic. I mean, the desire for life, I think, is something innate to every living sure. being. And death is also something innate to every... And it's quite obvious that those two things, at the limit, conflict. OK. Uh, Christopher, do you want to respond to any... Yeah, well, I, I, I want to respond partly to what Ken said, because I agree entirely. Um, but just to add something on, on top of that, which is, in my view, and I think this is also a thought that's in Nietzsche, is that whatever else Christianity did, it gave us meaning to suffering. And I think that part of the modern condition, of course, Nietzsche is well known for saying God is dead in a slightly lurid phrase. But the, the basic idea is that, for example, that story about suffering, that ultimately there is a meaning to suffering, is mistaken, that we can no longer really believe it. And this is what the process of uh, secularization is. And I think that means that the modern age is particularly ripe for being understood as a tragic age yeah. because it's an age in which we have to face the facts of our suffering in ways. Uh, without um, many of the supports that we've had from traditional metaphysical pictures of of the world. And I think, too, I I agree with what what Simon has said. Um, And again, I perhaps could develop the point a little bit. One of the things, when I was thinking about this programme, that came to mind was um, a little book by Samuel Johnson, Rasselas, The Prince of Abyssinia, which is really a story of utopia. The prince is living in Happy Valley, and they're having, you you know, everything is provided, all of their desires are satisfied, Um, it's a world without conflict, it's a world of peace, and so on. But the big problem, as Johnson sees it, is that it's boring, and that's why they want to live. And And I think that's exactly the kind of thing that Simon is talking about that in fact if all our desires were satisfied if we lived in a conflict conflict free world which is the kind of world we always think we want to live in in fact we would find it boring so i think that well you might have desires for exciting things you know you might have desires for exciting things i that's true but but i think philosophers have said like schopenhauer i mean chris is right here that if our desires are all satisfied we end up being boring i mean they cease to be exciting you know being boring or being bored probably both being being, being bored (laughs) Well, I I don't know. I I think probably desires have got a sort of an infinite capacity for variation and, uh, you know... Yes, but they're just talking about the theoretical limit of which they are all satisfied. I think this is the utopian situation that uh, Chris is referring to. Exactly, and I think that it's... And I think that, you know, just to give another example, there's a wonderful short story, a longish short story by um, Kleist, Heinrich von Kleist, Uh Michael Kohlhaas. And this is an example, it's based on a true story of a man who became completely obsessed with the idea of the pursuit of justice. And this is, of course, a noble and wonderful Mm -hmm. cause. But in being obsessed with this pursuit of justice, he destroys all those around him, including his his wife, and he ends up up being punished. And I think this is is crucial, that it's not just that one might have a desire for something bad which conflicts with something else. It's it's that even our noblest desires can come into conflict with some of our other deepest needs and wishes and so on. Okay. Uh, Simon? Can I just um, disagree with both Chris and Ken on one sure. thing, and in fact with Nietzsche, Only which is one. this whole question of the, of suffering and the reason why life is tragic is because we need a meaning to suffering. I think 
This is very a very particular mm -hmm. symptom of a very particular culture that we live in, okay. while largely influenced by by Christianity, uh -huh. uh, but also there are other cultures, um, Buddhistic cultures, share this, in which in which suffering is given such a disvalue, in which suffering is seen as such a disaster, yeah. that unless we, unless we give some very powerful meaning to it, life, as it were, isn't worth living. And I think okay. that when Nietzsche says these things, he's actually still very much in his Christian mode. So I don't see uh -huh. it actually as intrinsic to life that suffering is the thing that creates its tragic dimension. Well, I want to ask you... I think it's, it only creates this enormous tragic dimension if we regard suffering as so utterly unacceptable and in fact later in his life Nietzsche strove for uh -huh. an acceptance of or an affirmation better put of the world and of suffering that doesn't involve regarding it as such an utter disaster and he looked to the ancient Greeks for inspiration in in finding such an affirmation. I wanted to ask you Ken actually what I mean what would it be to give life what would it take to give life meaning to suffering? Well as, as Christopher mentioned Christianity gives meaning to suffering because uh -huh. it gives us redemptive story. You suffer right. in order to get a reward. There is a purpose for pain and suffering, yeah, so therefore it's okay. Is yes, that, that would goes? be one version of it. Yeah. But I want to develop uh, the points that have been going on between Christopher and Simon. Sure. Because I, I agree with Simon too that uh, suffering doesn't have to be seen as tragic. In fact, Nietzsche thought a great life, a good life, involves taking up challenges, and challenges inevit inevitably involve suffering. Right. Because if you take great challenges, you're going to fail a lot of the time. So Nietzsche was not one of these philosophers who said, oh, the point of life is to escape suffering. But let me make the converse of that. I want to point out that, in fact, tragedy can move quite apart from these questions of suffering and happiness, and here's an example uh, to put this point forward, that someone could be, have an extremely happy life and still have a totally tragic life. Um, let's, let's say an example. Yeah, it's a possible example, but imagine someone in a coma right. who, during that coma, has a certain kind of consciousness and they're having a fantasy life, yeah. like a dream that they take to be completely real. Right. And they enjoy it tremendously. Uh -huh. I still think that looks like a tragic life to me, because they're just lying there. Well, but in some sense they're content. I mean, and maybe if they could report, they'd report. They'd say, I'm perfectly content. Is it, is it the, the, the case that you have to ask who's, the, who's it tragic to or for in that case? I mean, it's tragic for, for the people watching, but not for the person involved, maybe? Something like that. Uh, you wanted to say something, Christopher? Yes, I mean, I wanted to... I mean, when, when Ken was talking about the possibility of a life that would be a life of contentment, but also tragic, I mean, it immediately came to mind, the, for me, the, Tolstoy in his confession where in fact he describes a life of extraordinary success, you know, extraordinarily famous novelist and so on, with a, with a wife who loved him and children, money and so on. And then the bottom falls out of his life. He just has this intense sense of the, the meaninglessness of things. And there are reasons t t for that connected with for example his brother's death but I don't think that it's and I agree with Simon on this, I don't think the suffering that for example Tolstoy saw must lead to the notion of a, a tragic view of life, I think that's absolutely right but nonetheless I think it's true that as a general fact it does tend to leave it, lead in that direction and I think Nietzsche is actually more complicated than perhaps Simon has suggested because of course he thought, Nietzsche thought that Greek tragic culture was a response uh, to, the, to the experience of suffering amongst other things and an attempt to make sense of it. So I think he's attributing even to a pre-Christian culture the sense that um, suffering raises a puzzle. And I think it's true that one doesn't have to be freighted with a whole load of uh, Christian expectations, simply to have the thought, why is this happening? And I think that's a big yeah. difference, for example, between pleasure and pain. When we experience pleasure, we very rarely if ever ask, why is this happening to me? We just take it for what it is, the pleasure that comes to us. Whereas pain is something which immediately raises the question, at least pain beyond the you know very small pains, why is this happening? What's the meaning behind this? So I think that Nietzsche is a bit more complicated. I think that it, suffering doesn't have to lead or inevitably or necessarily lead to a tragic view. But I think there's something about it which invites in that direction. And I, I, my own reading of Nietzsche is that he will probably accept that. Well, I mean, I actually yeah. already suggested that Nietzsche's complicated because Ken read <laughs> yeah. the passage in which clearly suffering makes a huge difference. Yeah. But then there's also that strand to Nietzsche in which he wishes us to look at the world, look at suffering in the face, mm -hmm. and say yes, as he puts it. Yeah. And I think that, you know, when Chris talks about Nietzsche's aspect, uh, attitude to the ancient Greeks, he's 
this is much more in his early work where he's still under the influence of Schopenhauer and is fundamentally a Christian writer, Nietzsche right. himself, as right. he himself says in his attempt at the self-criticism uh-huh. of that very work. Okay, well, so lots of people he, would find that unbelievable that Nietzsche was a Christian writer. Well, Christian in spirit, and uh-huh. in, in the sense that suffering is such a problem that uh-huh. we need to find a redemptive way out of it in the sense there is no higher task right. than finding a redemptive okay. way out of it mm. now in his earlier work uh-huh. for example the birth of tragedy he sees art the if you like illusion or fiction creating activity okay. as a way of covering up or making good the terrible insights that he attributes to the you know to the dionysian to the sort of fundamental Dr- metaphysical driving force of life and that that's Later like on, your id or something in that's well without getting into comparisons yeah. that 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 is still a fundamentally what we would call in philosophy dualistic view of the world uh-huh. that he inherits from from schopenhauer later on he tries to get away from all that and he says i want to be like dionysus i just want to look at how things are and i want to resist i in this sense i agree with chris the natural urge for us inheritors of christianity one should uh-huh. add the natural urge to say why am i having pain why am i having suffering Mm. and to look at it and to say yes now what saying yes is is something we can come to Um, but saying yes crucially does not involve a calculation in which we try to figure out what the benefit of the pain is to us this is this is the crucial point Uh Um, and and i think on that you know i would part company with what chris has said okay um ken what do you think about nietzsche's uh response to tragedy do you think it's a viable response to say uh yes i'm going to affirm my suffering well as i say it comes down a lot to nietzsche's um reflections on happiness uh-huh. and as happiness to nietzsche was not a matter of, of contentment happiness was if you like more nearer to what aristotle said about realizing your talents uh-huh. and so he said look you can have a li- look at nietzsche's own life in terms of contentment practically zero he was not a very content person Mm -hmm. he was very lonely he was wandering up in all these pensions and sils maria etc and i can't say it was particularly dis in terms of contentment as a phenomenological feel raw feel i guess he had very little of it but we can look at his life i don't see his life as a tragedy because he achieved his talents and that's what he thought the good life was that was real happiness was not something phenomenological not contentment it was taking great challenges and pushing your talent to the limits by facing these challenges and developing them. So to you, uh, Nietzsche's, a tragedy for Nietzsche would be somebody not fulfilling their potential yes. rather than somebody not being happy. Not being happy. Well, uh, he'd even disagree about what right, happiness okay. really is. Sure. But yes, basically, mm. yes. He says, look, I mean, it's also, also his elitist. He said most people have no potential. It's one of the things that's so hard to take in Nietzsche. But he did think... And Aristotle was more democratic about this. Aristotle wanted, in, and as did John Stuart Mill, their idea of happiness was as many people as possible, or everyone, reaching their potentials. And it's a tragedy for that potential not to be reached. Yeah. They, neither Mill nor Aristotle nor Nietzsche thought of happiness in the way we moderns no, often do, no. as, as not being challenged, as feeling content, as something phenomenological. Yeah, something that makes you thrive, I think. What about, I mean, we talked a bit about Nietzsche. What about other philosophers' views on tragedy? Does anybody know any sort of notable tragedy? among the uh, philosophical canon I want to mention like an existentialist or something well, I'm, I'm, well there are of course existentialists and I mean Camus would be one example of somebody with his idea of the absurdity of uh, life ok I mean, this is Albert piece. Camus French existentialist last century yes um, and um I mean, his idea of the of the <clears throat> the absurdity of life is partly is partly this Nietzschean idea of uh, the, the death of God um, and the and what Max Weber, the founding father of sociology, called the idea that the world is entzaubert, that, that the world is disenchanted. Right. Um, and what does that mean? Uh, it, it means that we no longer see the world as through well it means many things but amongst the things it means is that we no longer see the world as through a system of for example um, gods or the god or a sense that uh, the world is made for us and that we are uh-huh. made for the world that we are that we're that we're at home in the world for example on the contrary it's the idea that we're just 
thrown here we just appear here so there's nothing that's going to magically happen and make going to make everything all right a- absolutely there, not maybe. and i think camus is somebody who certainly thought that way I and mean, i think also one of the advantages of camus work is that he places great deal of emphasis too on ordinary everyday um forms of tragedy so he's very interested for example in work and in the in the banality of work in the modern world in uh-huh. the way in which people's lives are ground down through uh, their work um, not because they're suffering terrible tragedies but precisely through the ordinary everyday way of coping with the way the world is so that's that's one aspect boredom is also another aspect that 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 Camus talks about Um, and I think Camus actually had a response partly in the idea of a response to the to the natural world Uh there there are moments in Camus writing where he's profoundly responsive to the beauty of the natural world Mm -hmm. so for example in his novel La Peste the plague most of it is pretty bleak but there is a moment where a couple of the characters go swimming in the sea together and this is a moment a kind of idyllic moment for Camus which says no actually that response to the beauty of the natural world is a possibility and is something which one can seek out and as a response, I think, okay. to to the tragedy. Okay, uh, so Simon. What about other existentialists like Kierkegaard, for instance, or uh, anyone who might pick? Uh, Sartre. Um, well, I mean, I suppose oh, I could mention Heidegger, who yeah. was very influenced by Kierkegaard, um, and this, Sartre is one of his disciples. I mean, I think, you know, Heidegger, perhaps like many of his... 20th so century he was a German philosopher the of German, the early 20th century. Yes, yes, the German philosopher who was a member of the Nazi party. And um, uh, also, I would say, probably like Camus, uh, you know, he, he had this vision of the human being as thrown, he used the word Gewaffen, as yeah. thrown into, the into world. a world... In which is in a sense not ready for him, and he's not ready, or she is not ready for it. Uh-huh. And the idea is not that this is actually tragic. I mean, in a sense, the idea is perhaps a little bit like that of affirmation that I was sort of groping at for before. Uh, okay, which is that it's not actually tragic. You are you. It's part of accepting and understanding life that you accept the fact that we are thrown into this world that can be profoundly hostile to our intentions that has no concern for us whatsoever mm-hmm. um, and that the the, the um, challenge of living a well-lived life uh, to Heidegger yeah. is to yes for, for Heidegger is to find an authentic relationship to this world in which you in a sense make it your own um, and in which you, in some way, dispense with the whole question of, you know, cost-benefit calculations, uh-huh. and you know, beyond this point of of, of so cost, how, it's, how it's, it's tragic. Think, and how, how would one do make set about making the world one's own world, according to Heidegger? Um, well, by by finding by well, firstly by a profound act of acceptance, uh-huh. which also involves getting rid of. I mean, this is a very complicated and long topic. It involves getting rid of a sort of means end instrumental approach to the world. Right. Gets rid of seeing the world as a sort of object for the subject to manipulate. Right. In fact, gets rid of the whole subject object distinction. So just make yourself at one with the world, sort of thing. Well, just. I mean, that would be a bit of the sort yeah. of hippie version of Heidegger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, Ken, what about Sigmund? Freud, he he thought that suffering and unhappiness were inevitable. Would you say that he's a tragic view of life and that his uh, response is a good response? Um, Yeah, well, uh, Freud didn't have Nietzsche's enlightened sense of happiness as as achieving your potential. He had a very pedestrian notion of happiness as kind of ordinary contentment. And he thought life was tragic. He said, look, the end result of um, psychoanalysis is to uh, replace extraordinary unhappiness with ordinary happiness, uh, ordinary unhappiness. I'm sorry. And so, in that sense, uh, he had a tragic view. But I don't think he had this picture that this wider picture of Nietzsche about. He didn't interrogate happiness in any sophisticated way. He just took happiness to be contentment. <coughs> but he said, look, it's just not in human nature to be content. So, in some sense, in that shallow sense, he had a tragic view of life. He said, "We're always our drives are always going to disrupt us in various ways, and it's always going to lead to this certain kind of discontent." Do you think he was right? Um, 
putting my hat on philosopher of science, I think it's really interesting what Freud said, and it could all be literally true. could all be just luft, empty air. I just don't know how to test those kinds okay, of claims. Okay, fair enough. Uh, uh, Christopher, you wanted to talk about Yeah, I, I wanted to say that I think part of the difficulty when it comes up, I think, in what Ken has just said, is that, you know, we could speak about the happiness of a life or the contentment of a life or the way in which people flourish or fail to flourish or notions of well-being. And these terms in various ways flow around philosophy uh-huh. but and they overlap a bit but they are quite different i mean it would make sense perf- perfect sense in to my mind anyway to say that somebody was flourishing but unhappy uh, maybe nietzsche flourished but was unhappy and i think that raises another aspect of this idea of when one thinks about whether a life is tragic or not is that there are different perspectives on it i mean i, I would in fact disagree with ken and say that i think that at one level, Nietzsche's life was deeply tragic in the sense that he was completely incapable of forming the kinds of uh, friendships and romantic relationships that he wanted to. But from another perspective, of course, Ken is absolutely right that, you know, in terms of the work produced and the influence that he had. And I think one of the, one, one of the things this shows is, and it's not just the case with Nietzsche, it's the case with all of us, that there are so many different perspectives that one could take up on, on, <laughs> towards a life, that that life could look tragic from one perspective, but from another perspective not be tragic at all and yeah. so i'd be i'd be disinclined to say about any given life it was tragic or it wasn't tragic um you know there are other cases of somebody who take the case of primo levi an italian who was uh, spent um, about a year and a half in auschwitz 1943 to 1945 and you know that's there's somebody who suffered in the most unspeakable manner was not didn't lose any faith he had no faith before the camps he had no faith after and in a certain way that as certainly that part of his life was in one sense deeply tragic but he made something of that life in an incredible way yeah. through his writing yeah. and so i think one can't say his life either was or wasn't tragic it depends so much on the terms well, one brings to bear wasn't it heidegger that said that you can't really judge a life until really the last second till, until they're dead was well, that well there's an old greek notion of to call yeah. no man call no man happy until yeah. he is dead okay. and this, this was partly a greek idea that you know one's life could go very well and then suddenly at the end something terrible would happen okay um, and uh, well one was no longer happy <laughs> or even after or even after right. yes there's a discussion in aristotle okay about exactly we're going to take a break for a track now this is going to be suzanne vega and the queen and the soldier and then we'll come back with some responses to the human condition Her head. And he 
Tell me how hungry are you, how weak you must feel As you are living here alone and you are never revealed But I won't march again on your battlefield And he took her to the window to see And the sun, it was gold, though the sky it was gray And she wanted more than she ever could say but she knew how it frightened her And she turned away And would not look at his face again He said, I want to live as an honest man To give all I deserve and to give all I can And to love a young woman who I don't understand Your Highness, your ways are very strange The crown it had fallen And she thought she would break And she stood there Ashamed of the way Her heart ached And she took him to the doorstep And she asked him to wait She would only be a moment Inside And out in the distance Her order was heard And the soldier was killed Still waiting for her word And while the queen Went on strangling in the solitude she preferred. The battle continued on. Partly, you're listening to the Philosophy Now radio show on Resonance, or on a podcast even, perhaps. Uh, today we're talking about tragedy, the tragic sense of life, and what ph- how philosophers have responded to that. I have with me Christopher Hamilton and Simon May from King's College London, and Ken James from Birkbeck, uh, and the new College of the Humanities. Um, so first I want to start off by asking Ken, uh, we mentioned different notions of tragedy before. I mean, how does... Um, the philosophical notion of tragedy that we've been talking about linked with the dramatic notion that was originated with the Greeks two and a half thousand years ago. Right. When Chris began, he mentioned these different notions of tragedy, and basically we've been talking about tragedy in life. So I'd right. like to talk a bit about um, uh, tragedy and drama and bring up a particular paradox that Hume uh, brought uh, up. Scottish philosophy of 18th century, yeah. Right. Uh, Hume, it's often called the paradox of tragedy, and the basic idea is this is, well, tragedy is a horrible thing, but why do we enjoy going to see tragedy? Right. What's special about that? Various people have brought in various notions like catharsis. Which means what, sorry? Uh, that's a six million dollar question. Uh, I'm going to let Chris uh, say. Oh, right. Okay. Well, <coughs> well, a traditional idea, an idea that goes back at least as far as Aristotle, is that what the tragic theatre does for us is to purge us in some uh-huh. way. Uh, and I think, well, p- purging would be one way of talking about the notion of catharsis. And it, it, the um, two emotions so, in particular. Sorry, let me stop it. Yeah. So, so it means we go through tragic emotions without actually going through well, tragedy, and thereby it, we sort of cleanse our minds it's, so, it's something i mean well it's very complicated but it's something it's something like that and um, in particular aristotle talks about fear and pity uh-huh. and his essential idea i think is that we as ken says we go to see the tragedy and in fact it's a horrific thing and we experience in some way the uh, the, the the emotion of fear but also pity because we see mm-hmm the tragic protagonist in a state of uh, despair um, and Aristotle like many later thinkers as well was puzzled by why do we do this why, why do we go to the theatre why do we want to see this and the answer in terms of this purging is I suppose in the end that in some way it's morally educative and in some way it fits us better for life and that actually fits in largely with an ancient Greek view of tragedy mm-hmm. because tragedy the tragic theatre was something that was at the centre of the cultural life particularly of Athens in how, the 5th century BC. How does that compare with what Hume would say? Uh, well uh, Hume's basic view of, of tragedy is um, 
it's related to that, but it's in some sense it's simpler in another right. way, in that um, we, we see horrible stuff happening, but at a, at a certain kind of a distance that makes it bearable. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's more complicated than that, but okay. I just want to put that on the board because I want to get to a deeper point. Right. Um, and the point I, I want to uh, uh, get to is that um, I think it's another way of looking at what's really going on in tragedy, and it answers Hume's question, and it links the two. That is, it links tragedy in life and tragedy in the theatre. I think all of us have an intimation that our life is somehow tragic. It's mm-hmm. got to do with the finitude of life, the contingency of life, which Chris, I think, and Simon will talk about more about shortly, um, and also the meaninglessness of life, that our life is contingent and perhaps meaningless and doesn't add up to a whole. And I think that is a really big worry because we only see bits and pieces of our life. We don't see the whole, and we don't know if it adds up. Right? Okay. And what's very special about tragedy in the theatre is... In tragedy in the theatre, we see horrible things happening to the protagonist, but in some deep way, it's part of an overall web that is meaningful. And I think part of the enjoyment of tragedy can be there's an intimation Mm -hmm. that while we can never be in a position to see our life like that, there's a hope that maybe my life is like that. My life is extremely painful, horrible things happen, but the real worry is, and it doesn't add up to anything. Okay. And Peter gives you this intimation that it can be part of a wider, meaningful web. So this, this is going back to your Nietzsche stuff, is that uh, why we like tragedy is that we get to see the whole picture or the big picture whereby the tragedy has meaning in in theatre whereas yes, we it's don't a Nietzschean theory the of tragedy of if you like. like okay simon you look like you want to say something in response. Um, no i didn't particularly but i oh, could just uh, add yeah that um there is another way of viewing tragedy sure. which is not the way ken articulated or the aristotelian thing of pity and fear right but that it is a way of it is a way for each of us by seeing it on the stage or by listening to a tragic music drama say like tristan Isolde, uh-huh. it's it's a way of identifying with what life is really about in terms of for example this throneness and so on that yeah. i spoke about heidegger having having uh-huh. written on um but without obviously the wrenching pain of ourselves going through it so it's 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 not that we're just sitting there you know having pity for what's going on for the characters and their and their and their and their fates it's it's that we're actually ourselves able to participate in these you know to identify with these deepest uh-huh. realities of life but without actually you know so whatever it, it is through it's, it ourselves whatever it is it seems to be it's like it's calling up emotions that uh, in sort of a safe situation really mm. uh. I, maybe i could just develop this the the, the 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 point about the nietzschean view of tragedy because i think one aspect of it for nietzsche is to oppose tragedy in the theater to the notion of morality and I think one fundamental idea is that in the tragic theatre take a case like Macbeth if we were to come across a character like Macbeth then we'd run a mile or call the police or something but there in the theatre we're able to affirm this immense titanic energy of evil and I think what Nietzsche's thought is that somehow therefore I mean, he's not entirely clear on this, it has to be said, but his thought is somehow that we can affirm that evil in the theatre in a way that we can't quite affirm it in life. But I think, actually, that my own view about Nietzsche is that that leads him at times to fantasise the idea of being able to affirm that in life and not just in the tragic theatre. So he's often able to, you know, speak about horrendous, awful, morally terrible people as if they were necessary to what he calls, you know, the economy of life. And the truth is, I think, that that, if you like, suspension of our moral attitudes in the in the theatre is just something that we can't do out there in real life. Um, mm. But nonetheless, and picking up on the point that both Ken and Simon have made, the experience of the affirmation of this uh, evil in the theatre is is in a certain kind of way liberating, and that might might be part of the reason why we go to um, the tragic theatre. Okay. Um, so uh, the, the th- going to the theatre is one response to tragedy, but I mean, uh, as a general philosophical response to the tragedy of life, uh, which ones do you think are the most plausible of what the philosophers have said or what you think yourselves, I suppose? Uh, well, m- maybe start, starting with Ken, let's okay. start with Ken. 
No, let's start with Chris. Okay, let's start with Chris. <laughs> well, I, 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 my, my view is that um, I, I can't answer the question directly because right. I don't know what the answer is. I okay. mean, I want the answer to be to be able to laugh at life. I want the answer to be comedy, but I'm not right. sure how to make that work as, no. as an idea. No, we want ideas that can work. Well, they may, they may work in one way. I mean, if, if actually you think about the writings of Chekhov or you think of the writings of Kafka, what, they have the surface... Uh, aura of tragedies but often they have a highly kind of farcical comedic element in them and yeah. it may just be, to make it bearable to, yes and it may be that if somehow one could see oneself as a character in a Chekhov story or play or in a Kafka then maybe there will be some way of responding to the to the tragedy of life in that I mean, way I guess but but no, I just wanted to add that I think that many philosophic, in my view, um, um, many philosophical systems, indeed all philosophical s- systems, aim really to try and say that life makes sense. That right. the, the, the different bits and life is a chaos. And well, we know apart that. from the nihilistic ones, well, yeah. the nihilistic ones, no, perhaps not. But all of the grand philosophical systems have the aim to try and show well, actually, life can be made comprehensible. We can understand um, how the human condition and so on and so forth. And it seems to me that um, this is, in fact, an attempt to deny the facts of our condition which is which include for example and ken mentioned this earlier the contingency of our lives um it seems to me simply true that we're just born without any choice we have no choice who our parents are where we're born the mother tongue that we speak our early formative experiences we have no choice over our basic character traits or what we look like and it seems to me that that can that that sheer contingency when one thinks about it can be absolutely terrifying and i think a lot of philosophical systems and certainly christianity in the mainstream has tried to say no actually no this stuff is willed by god or it makes sense in the system can i just ask chris a question um chris why do you think that's tragic i mean not everything that's terrifying is tragic. Mm, no. And I'd just like to understand, understand what is specifically the tragic dimension in of that. The continu- Sorry, let me clarify that. He wants to know, Simon wants to know, why is the fact of the contingency of our lives, I mean, the, the sort of randomness of why they're one thing rather than another, I guess. Which indeed can why, be terrifying. Mm. For, but why, why, is why is that a tragic thing, the fact that, you know... Right, well, I think, I think one reason for it, one reason, the bad reason for it might be that we live in a culture which is moving into a period of post-Christianity in my view and the consequence of that is that we come to it with a whole set of expectations about what Christianity could do for us in terms of a system which would make sense of things and so we suffer and this is a Nietzschean point of course it's absolutely what Nietzsche says we suffer from the fact that we would really like there to be a God and the Christian system to make sense but actually it, uh, we can't really believe it mm-hmm. anymore I think that's part of it and I think the other part is to come back to some of the things that we've been mentioning earlier which is that um, the, the contingency of our, our situation means that we all of us have to cope with being the kind of individual that we are and that's something over which we have very little control that it, that often exceeds our capacity to understand that is often a source of great mystery and, and perplexity and i think from that point of view it, again it's like suffering it doesn't necessarily lead to to a tragic view but i think it invites one into a tragic view that human beings are homeless that that this doesn't make sense it makes no sense why i am as i am i just am as i am and that's just the way things are so okay okay simon i remember that you've written in in your book on love that uh the desire for love is a desire to be ontologically rooted is that a correct remembrance yes indeed Uh, okay so this this sort of seems to uh, uh, connect with this whole tragic theme of needing to be uh, what um, Christopher's called ontologic, have an ontological home. So it seems like you're agreeing in this. I mean, do you think that our need to have roots in the world is, is a sort of tragedy if it's not met or when it's not met? Um, well, yes. I mean, I think part of our so-called tragic condition is, as I said at the beginning, that we have very powerful needs, and one of those is for uh-huh. roots that can never be perfectly met. Okay. Um, however, I think that the tragic dimension specifically only becomes unbearable when we have, when we have this expectation that these these immense needs, you know, like for, for, for rootedness, for flourishing and so on, in a sense should be met, but that 
that they aren't. I mean, that, that there's some lack of acceptance of the imperfection of the world. And I think Chris is absolutely right in saying that, you know, this stems from a very particular philosophical and religious tradition which if we really were to overcome it right. in other words if we were really to get over uh-huh. and become post-christians which were anything but we're sort of christians now but without the god i mean yeah, just putting sure. it a bit simplistically it's but we've still, inherited a christian sort of metaphysics well without we've god certainly sort of inherited thing. a lot of the expectations yeah. of you know having a sort of very powerful set of meanings that can guide and give justification to our lives so what's your uh, preferred response to the tragedy of life then uh, Simon, yes, Simon. Well, out of the philosophers or your own. Uh, uh, well, I would conclusion. say, you know, an affirmation of the sort that looks at the world. I mean, I'm not saying that right. any of us are capable of doing that, right. but if you ask what would my preferred response be, would be to be able to look at the world and not say yes in the sense of, you know, it's all for the best, mm-hmm. but just to say yes in the sense of finding something magnificent in its sheer existence now that might sound vague right but i think it's a it's a tremendously difficult and important task okay. for us all i think chris is absolutely right that uh, he alluded to this that laughter or comedy is a key to both getting us there but also it's part of that attitude of acceptance and you know i could talk for example i mean one of the i think one of the greatest creations ever of a human being is Cosi van Tutte of Mozart, which many right. people think is a, an exceedingly trivial story in which lovers dress up as each other and then seduce their, you know, their, their friends, boyfriends, and so right. on. But what is so extraordinary about it is that something that if we, we which we would encounter in daily life we would say you know they're despicable and these men have suffered a terrible ordeal we we leave the theater essentially light-hearted okay and the genius of mozart's music is to bring that state about and to me that's part of an attitude of acceptance so maybe art is a path to salvation from tragedy for you okay ken so you we've put it off now but i want to ask you what is your uh, as a as a professional philosopher or even as a layman what do you think that you've heard the philosophers say that is the most plausible response to the human condition or that you know something that actually works for people who feel life is tragic what is a good response well i do like nietzsche's response that to say that tragedy isn't really the problem Uh um um yeah life is irredeemably painful but there are other vectors of measurement of pain so we can say, yes, life is tragic, but we can still affirm life. This is why he admired the Greeks so much. He said they had the honesty to admit that life is invariably painful. A lot of your plans are going to go in the cropper, but they could still affirm life. So what Nietzsche said is it's, tragedy isn't the problem. It's what tragedy does to us is the problem, that tragedy makes us passive. Pa- tragedy makes us uh-huh. turn away from life. Mm. So... What Nietzsche was really looking for was someone who could be honest enough to admit the painfulness of life and also that it's life can be painful in that other sense of not achieving your potential, your plans, but still to be able to affirm life and okay. not to take a passive stance and to turn mm-hmm. away from it. But I'd like to interject a philosophical joke here to leave oh, things yeah, up. Go on, let's so a different, slightly different take on tragedy, and this is the one that worries me a lot. Is, mm-hmm. And it starts with a philosophical joke. Think about poor old Jones. You know, Jones lost his job. His wife left him, his children got run over, his dog left him, and to top it all off, Jones doesn't even exist. (laughs) (laughs) Now, that's a comic, it's a joke, but there's also something tragic in it, because that's my deep worry about tragedy. My deep worry about the tragicness of our lives is that we don't even exist. What do I mean by that? well, what I mean by this, of course, m- my body exists. I exist, right, in that sense, if you just take it, this physical object here. But I'm wondering if there's any me really there. It's to relate it to Chris's point, Chris talked about the contingency, that everything is formed Well, what do you by, mean? I don't understand what you mean. You have to clarify that a bit. You know, Beckett says it um, wonderfully. Did I ever say I to myself? And th- Beckett and people like Nietzsche raise this question of what it is to say I to yourself, what it is to really have an I. The way Nietzsche put it is, oh, most people are just members of the herd they don't really have a right to say i to themselves they're just a reflection of currents around them and i think that's a deep worry that's that that's what i that's what i see the tragedy of my life i think 
do I really exist? Yeah, this body is here, but does it add up to a whole? Does it add up to anything? Mm. Uh, maybe, uh-huh. uh, maybe I could, I don't know, develop or just respond to that because, I mean, my own view, which I think is not a view very widely accepted in, in philosophy, is that fundamentally the self cannot be understood, that fundamentally we are mysterious to That's ourselves. That's the point I'm getting at. And yeah. mm-hmm. um, it seems to me that actually what we do, we go through life always mistaking the unimportant things for the important things and vice versa that we that we live in a way extremely unclear about what it is we're doing about the nature of the choices that we're making and so on and so forth and i think that i think that does deliver a sense of the fundamental mystery of the self which i think it can't be very well articulated in the discursive terms of philosophy and comes through much more in literature that's exactly the point i want to take up and it brings back to that point i mentioned earlier about tragedy and it very much resonates with uh, what chris said about macbeth macbeth existed Mm -hmm. i mean not as a real person but as a real character Mm -hmm. he's got a definite character and my worry is whether for good or for evil I don't exist in the way Macbeth exists. You haven't he got a well-defined a character, but uh, yeah, in some so sense, what, yeah. so what? I mean, it's like you do exist as a person having experiences, and you've got a family, mm, and you've got a, you know you've yeah. got a career, and you know. So, but you know, there's a, there's a wonderful short story by Chekhov called "A Boring Story," oh, which yeah. is anything but boring. And there's a central character in it who, as I remember, I think is a professor at a university, so maybe it's mm. apt. Mm, and right. he, one of the interesting things about his life is he comes to the view that his life is meaningless. But it's not because he doesn't value things. He actually values lots of things: his mm. students, his wife, and so on and so forth but he has this feeling and maybe this is close to what ken is saying he has this feeling that somehow it doesn't add up because a very powerful thought that one might have about tragedy is the sense that nothing has any value but i think there's another and that may be one form of it but another form is things have value but somehow it doesn't fit together somehow it's going nowhere somehow it's kind of remains fragmented and i think and that's that would be i suppose a deeply tragic condition i guess that Ken, that's what you're talking about. Yeah, that that sense so. that the yeah. things are valuable, but how does it fit together? Where's the where's the scheme? Where's the where's okay. the telos? Okay. Yeah. Um, well, finally, I just want to ask Simon: Do all cultures have a sense of tragedy, or, so, or are some cultures more stoical or accepting of life than others? Do you think? I don't know why you ask these easy questions at the end. <laughs> yeah. um, well, the short answer is I really can't answer that question. But do all cultures have a sense of tragedy? Yeah. Do you think? If I if I guessed, and I don't know the answer to the question, I would say yes, all cultures do have a sense of tragedy, perhaps, you know, in a sense for the reason that I think trage- tragedy is, is inevitable, that we are always going to have conflicts between our deepest desires and the world in which we find ourselves and okay. possibly between so those desires themselves the same terms they might have different desires they might have different forms of meaning um and they they, they might even have a different requirement uh, um, about whether they want to seek an overall meaning in life i.e their, their life adding up to something as, uh, to which chris and ken just referred but regardless of that i think there will always be fundamental conflicts between human desire and the world yeah okay um, maybe a last question we've got time for. One of the collateral implications of Darwinism is the idea that nature sanctions any behaviour expedient for what long-term survival and reproduction. That is to say, natural selection tells us that the universe itself is immor- amoral. Could we ever really align our thinking to a reality blind to suffering and evil? Or will some things always be morally repugnant to us? Well, I, I'd, I'd be inclined to say some things will always be morally repugnant to us, or at any rate repugnant to us, because I think that it's 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 true that human beings are valuing creatures. I think it's just an inevitable part of the way we are that things appeal to us, other things repel us, we make judgments about their value. That seems to me inevitable. So from but your point of view, tragedy is inevitable. Well, well the other, the, the, the further question is whether, is about the change in that, because one might agree, even if one agreed with that previous point, it, it can certainly be the case that different people value in different kinds of ways, and the question would be whether one could end up in a situation of what you described would be nihilism in my view i think that's impossible but i think values can change enormously well it's not nihilism it's just a reflection of the way nature is according to the current uh 
paradigm of how the world is, isn't it? Well, yes, but I think a lot of that um, Darwinism and neo-Darwinism is extremely optimistic about, you know, it's a kind of very relaxed naturalism, okay. which I think is, my own view, is, is implausible. For, and the reason is all of the reasons we've been talking about this evening, actually. OK, thank you very much. I think we're going to have to end there. Um, anybody got any projects or anything they want to plug? Well, only that I'm writing a book on tragedy at the moment. So. Okay, and uh, <laughs> Simon's book on love came out a, f- a few months ago, so please go and, and buy there's that. There's plenty of tragedy there, yeah. Yeah, and it goes into tragedy. Any books or projects? Well, I make it a habit always to plug Simon's book on Nietzsche, which is one of my absolute favourite books on Nietzsche. Well, there you go. <laughs> and I've got a couple of books, uh, The Meta Revolution and Love, Solitude and Destruction, available online yeah, if you go to Grant Bartley fa- at Facebook. I'll give you signs to them and we're going to this is the Philosophy Now radio show we've been talking about tragedy and we're going to end with a bit of uh, dreams made flesh